0: You're listening to Schumann's Space Report.
1: There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge. A place beyond man's vision, but not his reach.
0: Out there in the universe, there are black holes so big that they would swallow most of our solar system. From time to time, a pair of these black holes collide... And when they do, it shakes the very fabric of space and time itself. These cataclysmic collisions create gravitational waves that travel at the speed of light through the universe, like ripples in a pond. Collisions of neutron stars also create such ripples of gravity. It is even believed that the creation of the universe itself has left behind a ringing that can be heard if one has the right ear to hear it such an ear will the lisa observatory be in about a decade it will start to listen for the waves of gravity from far corners of the cosmos recently the european space agency gave the green light for the development of lisa which will be scientifically led by astrophysicist nora lützkendorf nora welcome to schumann space report
1: thanks glad to be here
0: as i said uh, nora you are the um, You have the title of Lead Project Scientist for the uh, LISA Observatory, which we will talk about today, and also the science especially that this uh, observatory will unlock. I call uh, LISA an observatory. I know that might be actually a point of uh, discussion, what to call it exactly, because this is not really a typical observatory like a telescope that is looking into the uh, universe. This is something quite unique in the way that it is built and in the way that it's studying the, uh, the universe. Can you tell us briefly what LISA is, what kind of an instrument it is?
1: Sure. Yeah. So as, as you said, Lisa is there to measure gravitational waves in space. This is actually the first time ever that we're going to do this. So it's very special. But it's not, as you said, it's not like looking like a like a typical telescope with a mirror and uh, instruments on it. It is actually three little spacecrafts that fly in formation in a big triangular formation, which has an arm length of 2.5 million kilometers So those spacecrafts are 2.5 million kilometers away from each other and they exchange laser beams between each other. It sounds all very uh, futuristic, but uh, what they're doing, they're basically measuring the distance between those three spacecrafts, between each other, um, because this is how we measure gravitational waves. Gravitational waves change the distance between objects, but in a minuscule way, like very, very small. We're talking about picometers here. So this is as big as as a helium atom. Um, So these kind of differences we are measuring with laser interferometry. Laser interferometry is great to measure those extreme small distances. We're doing this already on the ground. And that is basically what LISA is going to do. And LISA is, in that sense, a kind of an observatory because it is measuring the entire sky all the time. We will see the gravitational waves coming in from all directions. So you could think of it like like a survey telescope. We're surveying the entire sky
0: just to add more to the confusion of uh, how to you know call this uh, this instrument let's say, call it that uh, lisa stands for laser interferometer space antenna so you, you could also call it an antenna i guess
1: exactly yeah, yeah. it is also an antenna you can yeah. call it what you want it is going to be very very cool
0: <laughs> okay uh, and and you hit upon uh, one of the you know for me very cool things about this mission. And that is, you know, the sheer size of it. It's uh, so big, the the size of it, as you say, 2.5 uh, million kilometers, several times the distance uh, between the uh, the Earth and the Moon. It, I guess it's going to be the biggest observatory antenna, whatever you want to call it, that has ever been built by, by humans, right?
1: Yes, I think you can call it like this. I was thinking about... Um, what you, whatever you call an observatory, when you think, for example, at the pulsar time arrays, where we basically use pulsars as our observatory, we could even say that is even bigger. <laughs> but uh, as human built, uh, I think it is going is the biggest one. Yes.
0: And why does it need to
1: be this big? Because we are measuring, as I said, we are measuring those extreme small uh, changes in distances. Right. The uh, gravitational waves are. Um, creating those, those changes in distances, but they're extremely weak, extremely small. And the longer the arm is, the better you, you can actually the, the easier it will be to, to, to measure this distance, even though it's still in picometers um, ways, but you could imagine that it's even smaller when they're closer together. And that gives us a specific range of frequencies that we don't see On the ground with the smaller uh, gravitational wave detectors and this frequency is the one of merging supermassive black holes those will be the objects that we can only observe in space because of the distance of these arm lengths or the size of those arm lengths and also because it is much much quieter in space than on the earth on the earth we have all those disturbances and so we can really measure uh, those specific frequencies that come the lower frequencies that come from the um, sorry, I think the higher frequencies, no, the lower frequencies, oh God, frequencies always mess my, my head up. <laughs> <laughs> so they, those frequencies that we can see uh, supermassive black hole mergers in that we can't see right now.
0: Yeah, and and maybe that's a good point to uh, take a, bit, a look at what is actually available to scientists at the moment. As you say, these supermassive black holes right now, we can't measure them with the current instruments we have. As far as I know, the instruments we have are LIGO and Virgo, right? Two interferometers, laser interferometers that are on the ground at the moment. One in the in the United States and one in Italy, as far as I remember, uh, that have measured uh, a couple of these uh, gravitational waves. But you know, um, with years in between uh, measurements, um, that, that is that is where we are now, right?
1: Yeah, we also have Kagra which is a, the Kamioka gravitational wave detector in Japan um, that also belongs to the uh, LIGO and Virgo kind of class of detectors. But that is where we are right now, yes.
0: And they can observe what kind of events uh, out there in the universe?
1: So they were actually meant for observing neutron stars and neutron star mergers, and it was quite a... Quite a um, Surprise for, for physicists that they mostly measured uh, black holes with more massive black holes than we thought uh, as, as their first uh, targets. But so they are they are designed and they are able to detect stellar mass black holes a little bit more heavy than this. So this is in, in the order of maybe uh, three to ten times the mass of our sun and uh, then also neutron star mergers. This, those ones we can see right now with them.
0: Okay. And so if we fast forward to 2035 when LISA is scheduled to come online, how can can you talk about the leap from where we are now in terms of measuring gravitational waves to, you know, what kind of a leap uh, science will take when LISA comes online?
1: Yeah, so as I said, the new class of mergers we will see, and this is one of the biggest science goals of LISA, is the one of the supermassive black holes. And this is the ones that have been like, um, uh, that, that astronomers have been talking for, for ages because we, we can really see those supermassive black holes in galaxies really well because they release so much energy. And we also know that galaxies, for example, um, they evolve by mergers so we think supermassive black holes must also merge quite a lot, but we've never really seen really good smoking guns. It's, it's an event that is really short, and it's hard to, to really see that in the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, there's even theories out there um, that, that supermassive black holes can never merge because there's something called the final parsec problem where they just wouldn't get closer together because they couldn't get rid of the energy. So there is a lot of like controversy about merging supermassive black holes. We have never really seen it, we have now the results from the pulsar time arrays that give us a background that of gravitational waves that look like that come from supermassive black holes. But again, this is just like a more indirect measurement. With LISA, we will finally see a direct ring down, how we call this, the last little ti- like time steps before supermassive black holes merge. That will also help us to, to send up follow-up observations, those so-called multi-messenger observations, right when they merge, right? We expect this to be a very energetic event, like a gamma ray burst. So, we can alert other telescopes saying, like, here in this portion of the sky, we expect the supermassive black hole binary to merge in the next hours, days. And then we can look at this and can see what this gives us on the electromagnetic spectrum. That will teach us so much about all the processes and the accretion disks of those events that we have never really, we weren't able, we aren't able to do this right now. And then there's another other um, objects that are super interesting that we will see with LISA. This uh, one of them are the galactic binaries. We will see a bunch, we will see tens of thousands of galactic binaries in our LISA spectrum. So those are binaries, they're not merging. They're just like binaries, like white dwarf binaries and um, a little bit of neutron stars binaries in our own galaxy. And we will see them basically as a kind of background, but also as individual sources. And we can really determine all of the parameters of those binaries from the gravitational waves, like their periods and the eccentricity. And that will teach us a lot about how those binaries formed, right? Which kind of formation channels we have to form those kind of compact binaries that always include an, an neutron star or white dwarf. We will also be able to see where they're distributed in the galaxy. That gives us a good new view on our galaxy how our galaxy is structured and uh probably many many more things that i'm forgetting now about the binaries and then the last big very interesting source class that i always like to talk about are the so-called extreme mass rise ratio in spirals they're called emries uh we, we love our acronyms <laughs> so those <laughs> emries those are supermassive black holes that are that eat basically a stellar mass black hole like this is like a the the mass ratio of this binary is is extreme because the stellar mass black hole is very small the supermassive black hole is very big but they produce extremely interesting gravitational wave signals because the stellar mass black hole that has like many many orbits that it uh, orbits around that supermassive black hole before it actually gets swallowed and that cannot tell us a lot about the space time around the supermassive black hole and we can test like theories of gravity, like the no hair theory, I and mean, the Kerr metrics and all of those things, if they actually be correct, because the gravitational waves will imprint a lot of very valuable information from those kind of events that tell us a lot about the space time around those black holes. And then obviously there's many other things we, we expect to see gravitational waves from the beginning of our universe. And there we know very little what they actually produce, if there's actually any. And um, so that is a little bit more uncertain, what we will see. And then the most, I think one of the most interesting thing are the so-called unforeseen sources and gravitational backgrounds that we have never thought about um, that we hopefully will also see with Lisa. And this is always the most exciting thing, right? That was the same with Hubble and it will be the same with web, it will be the things that we didn't think about that we didn't put in our science goals (laughs) that that will actually be the things that define this mission to make it uh, amazing and outstanding at the end.
0: Yeah, out there, something uh, amazing is waiting to be known. I, I can't remember the exact quote by Kassig, and it's uh, something along those lines. But uh, yeah, it'll be amazing to, uh, <laughs> you, yeah. t- to see what uh, Lisa will be also able to uh, discover. Ma- maybe let's uh, dive a bit into gravitational waves, what this phenomenon even, even is. Uh, so uh, as we've touched upon, when we have things like... Um, black holes that spiral in towards each other and then finally collide Uh, that is you know how uh, gravitational waves are created but what can be said about what gravitational waves themselves are Um, I think in science sometimes we talk about waves in ways that are not always like a wave on the ocean is for instance light waves Um, so so how close is a gravita- gravitational wave to, for instance, for instance a, a wave on the ocean?
1: Um, well, it is, it is the same concept. The, a wave, in my opinion, is something that is per- periodic, periodic and that travels in space. Uh, and that is exactly what also a gravitational wave is doing. It is a periodic change of the space and it travels through space, right? Um, it looks different because, I mean, it's not really visible for our eyes. Um, It is not a wave that is up and down like on the water. It is a wave that when it passes through you, it changes the distance between the objects that it passes through. This is the only effect that a gravitational wave has. It is not affected really by anything else. So, for example, light waves, they are affected by gas and by dust in the universe. So it gets absorbed. So it's harder to see when it's far away. Gravitational waves can travel very, very far, unperturbed through the universe. And that makes them so special. And if you go a little bit more on the mathematics, um, when you think about light waves, they fall with one over r square. So one over the distance is square. So that's why they fall quite quickly from, from, from distant objects you don't see that that easy anymore. But gravitational waves fall with one over R. So they can travel much faster, much further. And that's why we are expecting to see really beginning of the universe kind of things and, and really, really far away massive black holes with gravitational waves. And that makes them so special. Um, yeah, I think that that is what I would say to how they how they relate with other waves.
0: But but of course, as you also touched upon, when we measure th- these waves, then when they arrive here at Earth, it is really a, a very, very small disturbance in space-time or, or protuberance in space-time, right? You talked about picometer. Uh, how, how small, again, I've, I've heard it described also as... Uh, with LIGO, that the distance it's measuring that is being changed when a gravitational wave uh, comes in over the, uh, the instrument is about the size of, of the width of an atom.
1: Yeah, that is the same for us. <laughs> it yeah. is about a picometer <laughs> change. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, that is very small. I mean, gravitational waves themselves are not a huge effect. Even if you get closer to the um, events, it's not that you suddenly see it with your own eyes. They are very small effects, and that's also the reason why it took us so long to really prove them. If you think about it, Einstein, when he developed his uh, general relativity, he thought about this. He thought about gravitational waves because it was a natural consequence. What he basically did, he put a little disturbance on his uh, field equations and he, he went through with it. He he calculated it through and then he ended up with the wave equation, which is really cool. I mean, I, I really I could geek out about this. I really love that. But um, so that is, was predicted already such a long time ago, but it was extremely hard to prove. We had like the first indirect proofs of gravitational waves with the pulsar, uh, with the, pulsar the Taylor and Holtz pulsar, I think it was the name, um, uh, where, where we can really see that the pulsar is losing energy by, while it's in this binary. It's losing energy that exactly is the energy that is predicted by emitting gravitational waves. So that was spot on from the predictions. But that was not measuring gravitational waves yet. It was just saying, okay, there is something that it is losing, and it must be some kind of energy. Um, until just very, quite recently, when we had the first gravitational wave detections with LIGO. So it is—it uh, was a long way to get here because it's such a small effect.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you said uh, that's that's actually something that has been on my mind while preparing this uh, interview. That is the effect if you were very close to such a a merger between two uh, black, uh, supermassive black holes, for instance. You said even there the effect would be very small from the gravitational waves. I, I had sort of imagined that maybe such an event would be a bit like dropping a rock into a, a pond or something like that and it would be very violent and if you had a planet close to uh, two supermassive black holes colliding that the gravita- gravitational waves might even tear up the planet but i don't know if anybody has actually looked into the to the effects of of this
1: i think it would definitely destroy the planet i'm not sure if it would destroy the planet through gravitational waves there are much 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 more violent processes when you merge supermassive black holes like you will get an enormous burst of of gamma rays going through the universe um but uh, that is it's actually a good question i don't know but my Mm. guess would be it would be other more electromagnetic things that would tear up the planets than the gravitational waves themselves.
0: In any case, you would have a very bad day if you were very close to...
1: It would be be a horrible day, but maybe (laughs) very spectacular to watch.
0: Yeah. You you talked earlier about the relationship between frequencies and then the types of events that we are looking at with um, gravitational waves. So that... The supermassive black holes, the most massive kinds of collisions they create uh, gravitational waves that have um, lower frequencies whereas for instance neutron stars so relatively uh, smaller collisions they will have higher frequencies so is this a question of is this a relation that has uh, that is dependent on mass between these uh, these objects how is that relationship? Yes
1: absolutely that is mass that is just purely mass the the heavier they are you have a um just a yeah a, a lower the the gravitational waves give you a lower frequency than when you have smaller masses that is yeah.
0: and why, why is that
1: um that is you have whew, I need to I need to think about this a little bit. It's like <laughs> we always take it as so for granted, yeah. <laughs> but now that I can tell you the exact physical, um... but it's basically just the orbital frequency, right? It is just it is directly proportional to the orbital frequency of black holes, and if you have a higher mass binary, you have a lower frequency than if you have a, a, a smaller mass binary because they're just closer together and they make. burn the big black holes, they make like more like boom 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 right so we have lower frequencies for the supermassive black holes and higher frequencies for the smaller black holes
0: okay and that is basically uh, but but you said that the reason that we still haven't really seen or observed the supermassive black holes colliding or the the gravitational waves from them is because the the frequency is lower so it is it is more difficult uh, so to say to observe low frequency events uh, when it comes to gravitational waves
1: yeah absolutely so the detectors on ground just don't have the sensitivity uh, in those frequency bands right we usually look at those those sensitivities that usually give is are like a little curve like a little valley where the sensitivity is, is is the best where the where the curve is low and then it goes up where the noise sources start dominating and uh, for LIGO detectors you get a lot of very strongly noise uh, sources in those lower frequency bands. It's just something that they cannot filter out um, from from all the disturbances on the earth. And that's why they they won't see supermassive black holes with those.
0: Okay, so it's a question of other other noises sort of seeping in, in this case, that will ruin the measurement.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. You also talked about um, these other phenomena, these other... Uh, types of collisions and also um, binaries that lisa will detect binaries of neutron stars binaries of uh, white dwarfs that are spiraling in towards each other i have heard it described once that uh, lisa will be able to sort of hear the universe like like an you know like foam where small bubbles are, are popping all the time or when you when you pour a glass of of uh, coca-cola for instance, you hear that that <laughs> sound that it, that will almost be akin to you know how many objects it will be able to detect the gravitational waves from
1: yeah yeah I think that is a it's a very nice analogy of what we would probably see with lisa it's um there's going to be quite a background of sources because as I said we will measure the the whole sky at at the same time all the time right it's not we can We cannot point the telescope or the the mission or whatever you want to call it, the antenna to a specific point. It is really just observing the entire sky all the time because they just come through the constellation. So it's going to be a very noisy signal and it is quite a challenge. And it's one of our biggest challenges that we are preparing to to extract the individual signals from this gigantic noise that we're getting all the time. And yes, as you said, we have, we have um, very high energy events, like the supermassive black hole mergers. They will stick out in the noise. You would be probably even see them when you just look at the, the noise When uh, you see a supermassive black hole mergers. They become so high in signal to noise that you can directly see them. But there are many, many more sources in there that are hidden in there that we need to get out by um, fitting the data to a huge arsenal of models And then seeing which of those like combination of sources are the best fit to this data so that we can find out what else is hiding in there. And that is quite a challenge. And that would be very interesting to see.
0: Let's uh, return to to the instrument uh, itself. So we talked a bit about the length of the arms of the triangle these uh, this 2.5 million kilometers uh, that will be between each of the three satellites but another thing that i found interesting while reading up on on the um, on the instrument is the way as you could say the the insides of these satellites and how, the the actual detector of uh, that will be used I've uh, r- uh, read that it's that inside these satellites there will be golden cubes that will be hit by the lasers, and it will be these golden cubes, so to speak, that will detect the, uh, the gravitational wave, uh, waves. Can you expand on, on these golden cubes? I found them quite fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds crazy, right? It sounds like out of a science fiction uh, movie. Yeah, so those golden cubes are our so-called test masses. In order to see really the effect of gravitational waves, we need to have something in space that is basically free floating, that is only affected by gravity and by nothing else. And that is a bit difficult because even if we go to space, even if we go outside of the earth and, and so on, we still have a lot of effects in space that are not gravitational. We have the radiation from the sun. We have little micro We have kind, all kinds of things that could bump into those things uh, into our spacecraft and and make them not being only gravity influenced. So what we're doing, and this technology has been already tested with the so-called Lisa Pathfinder uh, mission that we launched a few years back. We are doing those, we are putting those little gold cubes. Those are 46 millimeter cu- like cubic um, cubes uh, of the gold, I think platinum alloy or something. Yeah, something like that. When we're putting them into a a cage, in our spacecraft, where they basically free float around. and The cage then follows, the whole spacecraft follows, where those little cubes are uh, floating to. And it also shields the cubes from all the kind of outside pressure that we might have. So that is how we ensure that they completely are free floating in space and um, are not influenced by anything else. And then we use lasers, as I said. Sorry, you had a question?
0: Yeah, it's just why do they need to be made of gold <laughs> if that's not a oh, silly question uh, that's just,
1: so no that's not a silly question we need a material that doesn't have a high like that doesn't get charged easily that doesn't get uh, magnetized easily you know all of those other forces we don't want right we want something that is uh heavy um in a in a sense because we want mass. um but it's also um not easily to be like magnetized or charged, so that just turned out to be one of those those al- alloy, alloys. I cannot pronounce that word alloy. <laughs> <laughs> and that 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 worked really well for that purpose.
0: And then you say the laser comes in and and hits the cube.
1: Mhm. Yeah. It hits the cube, and that basically. So we have a couple of interferometers that we put together in in our spacecrafts. We have an interferometer that always measures the distance between the uh, cube and the optical bench then we have an interferometer that measures between the optical bench in one spacecraft and the optical bench in the other spacecraft the far away spacecraft and in this far away spacecraft we have another interferometer that measures again the distance between the cube and the optical bench and if we put those three together we have the exact distance or the yeah we measure the distance between the two um the two cubes on the opposite spacecraft Hmm. So we're just splitting this up because it's much easier for us to measure this inside the spacecraft and then between the big um, objects in the spacecraft and then again inside the spacecraft.
0: So when I'm trying to uh, write articles about uh, space uh, research, I always try to find images that, that people can relate to. And I'm trying to sort of come up with an image for how to imagine the detector reacting to a gravitational wave coming through And I've I've read some of the material that's out there about uh, Lisa and it's often uh, likened uh, or compared to sound that what Lisa will do will be to listen to the universe. So perhaps you could imagine that uh, Lisa functions a bit like an eardrum. Um, Would that be a, Mm -hmm. a,
1: a good image? Yeah, I think that is that would be a good image. It, it listens basically. You could call it the vibrations of the universe, and it uh, it can follow those vibrations, and we can measure it.
0: Another image I had in my mind of how the um, Lisa works is also. I, I was thinking. Um, I I used to sail a lot uh, when I was um, younger, and I was thinking of buoys out on the water. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. marking off uh, where the water is shallow. And if you had three buoys and and you would have a wave coming through and the buoys would jump up and down, would that also sort of be similar to what is going on within uh, Lisa?
1: Yeah, I think that is that is a good picture as well. You can yeah. you could imagine that if we you could imagine us not being able to see the water, but we have sensors on the buoys, right? Because we can't see the the space waves. We, we our eyes are not made for this to see them without having any test masses around it. Um, so if we wouldn't be able to see the water, but we have little sensors on the buoys and we see how they how they go up and down, um, we we can actually really well see what kind of waves go through there.
0: But yeah, maybe one thing I, I have a hard time understanding is then, yeah, of course the the thing starts moving as the gravitational wave comes through. But what is the reference point? Because you have to have a reference point to what it's moving up against to see that there's actually a difference.
1: No, we, it's really just the relative dif- the distance change between the spacecrafts ah. that we're measuring. Oh, ah,
0: okay, yeah. So mm. so even though the gravitational wave moves at the speed of light, you would be able to measure that there's a there's a difference as it as the wave moves across uh LISA. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Okay. okay. How difficult is it to construct um an a mission like this, you know, with that will be so huge with these lasers and and golden cubes within uh, within that need to be free floating.
1: Uh, it is very difficult. You can you can imagine we we have been working on this mission for a long time, and it actually um, it got cancelled a couple of times because people thought it was too difficult or not worth it, especially before gravitational waves were even detected on the ground. So it was quite a risk to say like, oh, we're shooting this extremely <laughs> difficult complex and. Costly mission up there without even knowing that we will ever measure anything. So um, yeah, LISA was already in, in the 2000s was already in the uh, in the pipeline, and people tried to get this mission going. But uh, it wasn't until really we had the gravitational waves um, in what was it 2016, and then we had uh, also LISA Pathfinder to really test the technology that really uh, gave it the the way forward where we are now so it's been like a long long time in the works um and it's still quite a challenge because it is it's our largest mission we have our largest science mission um and um yeah it's it's, it's going to be probably even larger once we will we be launched it in terms of like people and cost um but it's also one of those things right we have never done this before so i think we don't we don't get to do this anymore nowadays to do things that we have never done before we we send up more space telescopes that measure, like um, that infrared or um, X-ray waves. But we have done this before. We're just going to do it much better now. But we have done this kind of wavelength before. But I think it's really, really cool that that we are now doing something in that sense that we have never done from space before. And um, yeah, that's why it, I think it's also such a long, already has such a long history.
0: I'm sort of reminded of the Large Hadron Collider and and the CERN. As a sort of similar venture, um, I think it's 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 sort of similar in in, in that vein, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's com- that's completely new land, right? We don't yeah. know what we're going to see, what we're going to detect. I mean, CERN had some ideas what they will see, but they never really dreamed they would really find the Higgs boson. And uh, it's just, yeah, it, I'm pretty sure in ten, fifteen years from now, we we make Lisa will make headlines.
0: Hmm. From a technical standpoint, what is what will be the most difficult nut to crack uh, with Lisa?
1: It is going to be the data analysis. As I said, it is this kind of noise that we will see from all the sources. And to make things even more complicated, first, we need to reduce a lot of other noise that come from the detectors itself. So, for example, the laser noise. The laser has a certain noise It's just like, it's actually, if you look at it very closely, it is a quite a noisy thing, even though it's a laser with like electrons bumping into things. And the laser noise is actually orders of magnitudes higher than what we need for, um, for gravitational waves to measure. So if we would just measure without any post-processing, the, trying to measure gravitational waves, we wouldn't see anything because laser noise is too big. But we have a very, very smart technique to get the laser noise out and that is so-called time delay interferometry. This is when we basically make a very smart combination of our measurements from all three spacecraft to cancel the laser noise out because we measure it in all three points. And so we can actually recalculate back what the laser noise is and we can take it out. This method is has been tested in theory and also with experiments. But it's still kind of like this point, if that doesn't work, right? If we, we for some reason got something wrong and we don't get the laser noise out how we expected it to, then we might not see much. Um, we are still very confident that we will see it, but I think this is one of the biggest things that really have to work for us to see anything. And then there's, there's always the, the technical points as well, that the spacecrafts lock to each other so that they see. The other laser from the from the far away spacecraft right it's because it's it's 2.5 million kilometers away from each other that is also quite a, a difficult thing to then see that laser that after i travel 2.5 million kilometers it's not very strong anymore right so you will only see a little blob of red light um and you need to you need to lock on that light um i think those are probably one of the two big biggest challenges at least in my head probably some engineers would completely have different ideas what is the most challenging <laughs> thing but for me i think that's what it is
0: i'm also just thinking of the the fine controls that the spacecraft needs to have in order to you know point in the right direction and also thinking of of course uh, space is mostly empty but at you know in in such a huge areas as, as this will be this triangle there will be I'm guessing there'll be slight differences in, for instance, the strength of the solar wind, uh, things like that, the pressures that will be on the spacecraft, uh, and for them to point so accurately and keep you know, the sides um, of the triangle aligned, I'm guessing that will also be very difficult.
1: Absolutely, yes. And one of the good things, is it's not just the pressure, it's also the temperature. Um, our spacecrafts are a little bit, um, so the constellation is a little bit inclined, so you always have spacecrafts that are basically closer to the sun than the ones further away from the sun. But, uh, fortunately they really make this kind of cartwheel movement. And that means they actually switch positions and they switch those like environments and on a regular base. So we will be hopefully able to see what are those effects by just those spacecraft switching, but that's definitely one, another big factor. Yes
0: very fascinating it, it just got uh, you know i'm also just surprised that you said that the, the noise will be the most difficult thing i ha- i wouldn't have guessed that it just made the whole thing even more complicated in my mind uh, very i know
1: it's it's something that is not as obvious to see for the outside right because the outside always just sees the the spacecraft and the big distance and the lasers but yeah the post processing is going to be a big effort and we have already started to prepare for everything there's like people who have been working for years on this and uh, um, I'm pretty by just looking at who's working on this right now um whether the people who really know they really know their stuff right so I'm, I'm actually really confident that we we will manage
0: you mentioned earlier that the that Lisa will also be an important tool for what is called multi messenger astronomy uh, i I once wrote an article mm-hmm. about this so uh Uh, I'm always trying to bring this topic up when uh, I have the opportunity to. uh, For those that uh, don't know what multi-messenger astronomy is, um, when we look out into the universe, uh, we have different kinds of messengers. You can say that tell us something about the universe. One kind of messenger can be light, uh, photons reaching our telescopes, for instance, from radio waves uh, through visible light and all the way up to uh, x-rays. And another messenger can be particles like neutrinos or um, um, galactic rays, for instance, things that travel almost at the speed of light but uh, not quite. And then the last messenger is our uh, gravitational waves. So it's like, again, it's a three it's like three sides of a triangle, you could say uh, that that make up a a sort of new kind of astronomy that has really come forth in the last uh, last years. Can you, uh, you you touched upon upon it uh, earlier? but um, how, how will uh, Lisa help that field of, uh, of multi-messenger astronomy and what, what can that learn us, what can that teach us about the universe?
1: Yeah, so um, as I said, we will be able to to detect mergers before they actually happen because sometimes they become very bright in our, in our Lisa band before they actually go to the final ring down and the final merge. And we are already planning to, and it's not just with supermassive black holes, but all kinds of events we will see, we are planning to have so-called alert systems to other, to the outside, basically. So whenever we see something, we can see that in real time, um, that we we know is going into a a merging event, we can say, guys, uh, get your telescopes ready. We, we are gonna see an event soon. And sometimes it's hard for us to say at the beginning where exactly it will be because our sky localization will get better with time. So the closer we come to the merge, um, the better we will see where it is uh, on the sky. Um, um, but then we can basically tell them in every hour, uh, a smaller window where it will be in the sky than the telescopes on, as you said, other telescopes and other wavelengths like X-ray telescopes, gamma ray burst telescopes, infrared telescopes, optical telescopes, can then all point into this direction and we will be hopefully able to see a merging event from all those different with all those different telescopes, all the different wavelengths and messengers. and And that is going to be super interesting because all of those messengers tell us a little bit different about this merger. like we see with the electromagnetic um, observatories we see what what all the gas and the dust around is is, is going to do when something merges, what the jets are doing um all those different energetic particles and then obviously the gravitational waves will tell us about the exact masses and the spins and um the final mass of this merger and this is just something that that we have never really done before (laughs) with supermassive black holes with events of this size and we really expect big events when supermassive black holes merge and yeah it will tell us so many things about them right um what actually happens in those final moments with uh, uh um emerging black holes it might even explain a lot of phenomena we see in the universe that we couldn't explain yet like many gamma ray bursts we have no idea where they come from and maybe we will learn more about those events by 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 looking at those multi-messengers events so yeah it's it's going to be just a wealth of of information about those mergers and those events and i think it's going to be very cool because it's also i love this event because it brings everybody together right everybody's staring at the same at the same place and Everybody's observing the same thing, and everybody gets excited and uh, I think this also makes obviously amazing press releases and uh, engages the public a lot as well
0: yeah I'm also uh, yeah it's it's a very exciting thought to think about that the you know astronomers of the world will point their telescopes to this event that will come of neutron stars colliding uh, for instance, and be able to observe the things i guess more or less in in, in real time as the photons uh, reach uh, the earth um such a thing as a supernova will that also be something where lisa will be able to detect gravitational waves um coming coming through as as the supernova collapses in on itself or or will it not be able to detect that
1: no i think supernovae are more in the ligo band than in the in the lisa band we won't we won't see those
0: we talked about the the ringing of the universe so gravitational waves i'm actually i'm actually don't i don't quite understand uh, how this works but i could read from the press material from ESA that apparently from from the creation of the universe itself there's supposed to be a ringing of space-time or gravitational waves coming from all the way back then or at least this is uh, theorized Um, and you talked about also that that lisa might be able to detect this can you talk a bit about more what this ringing is and whether or not lisa will be able to teach us more about it
1: yeah this is this is a topic that is that is very difficult and i have to admit i'm not an expert i'm not a cosmologist to really give you an idea of where exactly it comes from my my understanding it is really from the from the very early structure formation when you had like big bubbles in the universe that were Bubbling up and and starting to form clumps of material, those kind of big movements of mass, um, all over the universe. Since it was a very small, dense universe, I think created this kind of ringing. This is at least my understanding. Yeah, you just imagine the universe as this like the young universe as this like hot, bubbly, like all matter together, clumped together, starting to separate, kind of thing. Yeah, like really like a blob, 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 blob thing. And and I kind of imagine. That the gravitational waves from this from this back from this time um, were created through those kind of movements there. But honestly, I think even the cosmologists are not 100% sure if if that really created gravitational waves. And um, this is really one of the questions we hope to to answer with Lisa. But it's also going to be difficult because it will show up as kind of a background, right? It's not going to be a very distinct signal. We will see it as a background. And then how we, we actually extract information from that background, that depends a little bit how how distinct that background looks like, what's its shape. Can we apply some cosmological models to that and, and basically exclude some theories or confirm some? So this is going to be a very, very it's going to be very interesting science, but also very complicated. And it's it's very hard to predict what we will actually at the end see and find out about this. Sometimes some people also think the background is going to be way too low for us to see. We, it will just it will just disappear in the noise. And some other people say, no, I think we can we can see some things at certain frequencies. But again, it's a very uncertain field. It depends a lot of which kind of cosmological model you believe. Um, and yeah, that is basically all I can say about that.
0: It's a uh, more problems with the noise, I guess. Again, to try to decipher what is what is within the noise.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, lastly, um, I always like to uh, ask my uh, guests who uh, do uh, such amazing work as yourself, what got them into uh, this field of uh, space or space flight? in your case, uh, space research? Uh, what got you into that? What, what is it that motivates you to, to do this kind of re- research?
1: Um, so what got me into, I always like to, to mention when people ask me that, I mentioned my grandfather who actually at very young ages was, was telling, he was he was not a scientist, he was a lawyer, but he he was always super interested in, in science, astronomy uh, and physics, he was reading all kinds of magazines and um, if, if there would have been podcasts at this time, he probably would have listened to podcasts as well like yours. Um, he was super interested and he was telling me about things like black holes you know i remember like at the breakfast table it's what a black hole is and how they behave um just things he read and he really got me into into being interested in those things i mean he he passed unfortunately he passed away before i got my phd he would have loved to see that but he he's still my earliest memory of of me actually getting interested in those things and then from from when i realized that i'm actually happening to be good at math and physics i I really wanted to work on the forefront of of science. I wanted to be one of those people who get to see certain data first or like get to get to know like new discoveries and be right there when it happens. That was kind of my and still is my 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 motivation and I actually didn't do gravitational waves right from the start. I come from really the the electromagnetic um, background. I used to look at star clusters and how um, they might hide Black holes inside, and how stars move around black holes. That was my research in the past, but I was always super fascinated by gravitational waves. I was so excited when I got the chance to work on VISA because gravity is my my absolutely favorite force. Obviously, because I'm really much in love with black holes, and so I I, I think this is my absolute dream job to to work on a mission like that. Yeah,
0: I I hope uh, Noah that you will be able to be the first to lay the your eyes on all the noise from, <laughs> from Lisa and try to, <laughs> yeah. to decipher it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, th- thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk to me about this uh, very fascinating uh, mission.
1: Uh, absolutely. It was my pleasure.